You're listening to the Who's Driving Your Car podcast, episode 15. Hello and welcome to the Who's Driving Your Car podcast, where we discuss not only who or what might be driving your life, but also the great views and experiences along the way. Do you drive in the fast lane like my wife, or do you feel like you're stuck in first gear? You only get one life to live, and it can be either a total wreck or a beautiful cruise into the sunset. We are three friends that have collectively experienced almost anything that could possibly happen in this crazy world, and we'll be discussing our personal reflections and experiences so hopefully you can avoid running out of gas and truly enjoy the wind blowing in your hair. So hop on in with us for a little road trip called life, and let's discuss who's driving your car. Aye! Welcome back to Who's Driving Your Car. Ha! <laughs> On today's episode, we have a special guest with us, Sean Corcoran, who is an attorney and very, I would say, good dad, husband, friend in the community here. And like Charles, one of our very good friends and our first guest on the show. So, and we thought it would be a really fitting guest to have on the show. And main specifics or regards to Sean has an amazing story full of, um, inspiration, maybe some motivation, willpower, faith, a lot of the topics we've talked about so far. And so we thought it would be the perfect uh, fitting for our first guest. Before we get into um, some of the details, we want to just let Sean introduce himself. Tell us a little bit about yourself, buddy. Well, first off, I want to say, I want to jump in there. I got to jump in there. Now (laughs) that I know he's a friend of the community. (laughs) Okay, proceed. Proceed. Just let um, that stuff go right am, over your head, John. I'm a friend of the community. Um, <laughs> my name is Sean Corcoran. I am a, a family law attorney, which covers divorce, child custody, um, community property cases. Um, I have. I'm married to Michelle Corcoran, who is a dentist. I have a five-year-old son, a four-year-old daughter, and we have an adopted son also who is 18 months. Um, I am Catholic. Um, it's very important to me. And, uh, one of your favorite things is the banquet coming up. I got the correspondence for the other day. One of my personal favorites as well. We love counseling (laughs) banquet. And I'm really glad you brought that up because that gives me and, um, Steven at least uh, a lot to talk about. And I think that Craig will have some stuff to offer as he hears, the discourse. Um, but uh, what you were referring to is the New Life Counseling Banquet, um, which is a, prices, a crisis pregnancy center here in Lake Charles. Um, you know, we serve uh, to minister to people who are pregnant and aren't sure, you know, what direction they want to take. Um, our hope and our goal is to help them to choose life, possibly um, you know, to keep the baby or to, um, to offer the child up for adoption if that's where they're at. We also offer services to people after um, pregnancy, regardless of what their choice was, whether that's, you know, to provide services for, um, for people who have, have had an abortion and, and are, are dealing with, um, you know, the effects of that, or if they've had a child and they need help getting on their feet for a couple of years even, um, you know, we, we have classes where they can, uh, it's called earn while you learn where they can, um, 
receive diapers, wipes, any, cribs, anything you need for, for children while learning skills that can help them to, um, you know, further their careers and get to a point where they really no longer need us to provide those, those items. Having been at the New Life Counseling Banquet, you know, Sean is truly a champion of that organization and uh, just his support, inspiration, and, and leadership is, is doing wonders. And so it's been fun watching him in that role. Unfortunate downfall. I've never even gotten to go to the banquet. Tried to go. <laughs> right. Or the cocktail party. And just to clarify, I think I said banquet. This is the cocktail party. And, and no, um, Hot Dog has never been to um, anything. Uh, he has, we have asked him to support the cause. And um, he did support. Well, I, I bought half the table, just like I forgot. One, one time we we um, one time we had about a three week textathon uh, that ended in him agreeing to come. I don't think he agreed to buy anything. I think no, he, he just agreed to show up. If we purchased each purchased a table at um, at a at a fundraiser that he was on the board for, <laughs> <laughs> we did, and then we started bidding against each other at the auction. And he still did not come. Uh, he did, however, last year provide a $25 gift card <laughs> to Botsky's. For the silent auction. First That's off. right, for the silent auction. So generous of you. I think that... I wish we could, I wish we could put all of the text messages about his love of, of babies on, um, on the... Uh, this is what day. I deal with on the daily with these people, for the listeners out there. Again, a falsity. I think the gift card was 50 First, but that's second, that's the important point here. Second, <laughs> second, I added on the second twenty-five <laughs> sure because did. everybody was like, nobody's gonna bid on a twenty-five dollar Botsky gift true. card. And in fact, I think you paid for the twenty-five. No, he did. He I think did. you paid twenty-five dollars for a fifty-dollar gift card, and then you don't. Yeah, it, it ended up costing me more than the whole thing was worth. <laughs> second, I also bought half a table to one of the years. I know I did. No, no, dude, are y'all being serious right now? Yeah. yeah. We, we tried. We, we tried. tried to get you down to a half a table. And, you know, this is pretty heartbreaking because I, will I, post I know. I copy of the check stuff. I know Lady J, his mother, has been a big supporter of. Uh, That's what he said. He said, <laughs> he said my mom uh, used to be on the board or, or supports you guys. And, and that kind of ended it. Like, I yeah, that was it. Supposed to Done call deal. Her and ask her to buy you a table. <laughs> well, it, it just showed that uh, Hot Dog is comfortable with uh, the little ones once they get out. When, when in utero, he's very uncomfortable with them. That's right. Because well, he was on the board for the Children's Museum. That's correct. So that's where the conversation went. Like, children are a big part of my life, but museum. yet I keep getting <laughs> thrown under the bus for this situation. Never invited to the functions. And I have donated to it. So, in any event... Sean does do a lot for the community. Well, he does do a lot for the community. And, you know, while you were talking, I had a, something just came to my mind. Uh, um, or your last name is, what did you say, Cochran? Are you related to Johnny Cochran? No, my last name is Corcoran. Oh, Corcoran. The R is not silent. I know that we have a lot of letters in Louisiana, last names that are silent. Um, and mine, it is not silent. It's Corcoran. Oh. Well, the other thing is, um, you know, now hot... Now me and Craig Cream over here are getting outnumbered with the attorneys and uh, just wanted to ask, since we have two of you here, uh, do you know how many jokes there are about attorneys? Zero. Oh, probably thousands. I don't know. Uh, three. The rest of them are true. The rest of the stories are true. <laughs> <laughs> Which one is the best? How long have you been holding that one on, John? <laughs> if the glove don't that, fit, you must have quit. That one was the best, I guess. <laughs> that was the best attorney joke. Yeah. Also, um, 
whenever you're going through the counseling with these people and you say, okay, you know, if you hire a divorce attorney today, within the next three years, you're going to be hiring a bankrupt attorney. Do I tell them that? Do you give them that advice? No. And a lot of people get really upset about that later. (laughs) Okay. Not being upfront with people. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I do tell people, however, that divorce is incredibly expensive and it is probably, um, you know, the hardest thing that anyone will go through financially, um, emotionally, spiritually, and even physically. Um, You know, and I tell people that in an effort to, um, and I hope my my partner is not listening, but in an effort to, to convince them to stay married because, you know, I don't, I don't like divorce. I don't particularly like, um, the idea of being a divorce lawyer or marketing divorce. However, it's a fact of life. It's a part of society. And, um, most of the people that come into my office are hurting and, and just need help and answers. And so just being able to, um, to guide them through that, if that's where they're already at, you know, that's why I'm there. Yeah. You know, my wife and I were watching a movie a few days ago, and I don't know if you've seen um, the movie Incredible Cruelty. Have you seen that? It's no. with George Clooney and um, Catherine Zeta-Jones. Uh, he's a um, high-dollar uh, divorce attorney, big shot, and um, what happens is he ends up... At, he goes to this national conference, and he's the keynote speaker, and he falls in love with Catherine Zeta-Jones, and he gets up and pretty pretty much renounces everything that he's done throughout his entire career. Um, and I was sitting there thinking, hey, that sounds like what Sean does in his office, <laughs> except he tells his clients that. <laughs> I, think, I think people um, appreciate uh, honesty. They don't want to be there either. So it's not... Um, I think I would have a really hard time with um, an attorney saying that they really enjoy divorce law. Yeah. Like, I don't know that I would be able to have a serious conversation with that person again. It's one of the reasons Hot Dog didn't get into that field. It's a lot. Weighs on you a little bit mentally. I mean, not that my type of law doesn't, but you're dealing with a lot of human emotions and things like that at their highest peak in a lot of ways. Are we all supposed to speak about ourselves in third person? <laughs> <laughs> Sean, I know you're an avid listener of the podcast. I am. As you stated, you've listened to all of them. Yes. And we really weren't planning to play trivia on the podcast, but we do have, I have a question, I guess. Yes. We, you should know that I talk with my fly lingo, dude, that I don't talk normal. You're That's drinking true. out of a half a glass right now. I am, I am drinking out of a half glass. It was full. It's a half a glass. It's half full. It is now... A full half glass. <laughs> um, there are other things. You're right. I've heard several other things on the podcast, but um, couldn't find the right stuff on Amazon to make it worth our while. <laughs> well, look, I think that's a perfect segue into our new segment, Would You Rather? So nobody knows the question today. Last time John and I did. No one knows. So, Sean, we play, we've started a segment where we play the game, would you rather? And we're going to ask a question. You can lead us off with what your answer will be to it. And the question is, would you rather be able to talk with the animals or speak all foreign languages? Speak all foreign languages. Absolutely. I would rather be able to talk to people than to animals. Um, and, and, and I actually have, I actually have, a, have a plan over the next year um, to learn Spanish. Um, I have never <laughs> had a plan. Wow. to learn dog. 
It's pretty tough. I've been, I've been working on uh, the Spanish for a while now, um, but good luck to you. Thanks. John, what would you go with? We could practice. Oh, uh, For me, I would probably do all, all foreign languages. Uh, but with that being said, would the dogs understand me regardless? The French dogs. Just the French dogs would understand me. I think that's debatable if anybody <laughs> can understand you just in general. <laughs> to be honest. Sean got it perfectly. What about you, Kirk Cream? No, I'm with these guys. I would do foreign language. Uh, I think that'd be the coolest thing. Go into any environment, any country, and fit right in. Plus, hunting would be really weird down here. (laughs) (laughs) You'd be in the duck blind, and all these conversations are flying over, and you're talking, and I don't know, just make it very awkward when you have to, you know, hop out the blind and pull, you know. (laughs) I guess it would be a great skill, though. I mean, if I were maybe a veterinarian, I would probably choose the animals. Dude, I'm choosing the animals all day long. As usual, I'm going against the two of you. Well, now three of y'all. I'd rather speak to the animals. A lot of people can talk a lot of different foreign languages. Ain't nobody talking the languages of the animals. Just think about that. I would have, it would be a great commodity. Have you ever heard of Dr. Doolittle? Yes, but. So you want to monet, you want to monetize it. <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't be a bad thing. If no, I no, no I agree. I think you could also monetize speaking um, every foreign language though. Although animals, considering their educational background, the conversation would be like, eat, eat, poop, drink, <laughs> eat, you want to eat, sleep, poop. I don't know that it would be much deeper than that, unless maybe I'm mistaken. I don't know. Like I said with the, what would you do a while back? You look those animals in the eye. <laughs> yeah, when you're sitting, on the, you're sitting on them instead of next to them. <laughs> There's no doubt. I would want to talk to the animals. All of them. Well, that's pretty cool. That's well, cool. I have one more thing about your bio that I want to talk about before we get started. Uh, so you're a lawyer. Yes. You're married to a doctor, man. That's pretty cool. You're like the modern day Cosby's. I Hux- am. The Huxtables, except there's fewer African-Americans in your house. There are fewer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, perfect. Well, look, before we delve in, I think it would be a good idea to tell a little bit how we all got to know Sean so the listeners can get uh, more of an idea about, I guess, our relationship with Sean and why he's an important role in our life. And I guess I'll start with myself. Sean, we were talking about this just a little before and you remembered. So you remembered how you and I, our first real conversation we had, huh? I remember that we went, uh, we went and ate at the Harlequin. Um, I remember that on that day I learned that you had, um, published a magazine about restaurants locally. Um, Man, you good memory, dude. which I did not know at the time because I think, uh, it's just really overwhelming to think about having three jobs <laughs> and you own the restaurant. Yeah. Did he tell you he was an elite athlete? Well, he started with that. I think he was <laughs> he was wearing a uh, baseball jersey when he went to lunch. <laughs> the one thing I recall is I didn't turn Sean down like I turned John down. Oh God! For the invites, I did go, but I do remember it really well because I didn't I'd known of you but didn't know you, and I still remember some of the stuff we'll talk about today. We talked about during that lunch. You told me a lot about yourself, and I was very. Um, I keep using the word inspired, impressed. What um, year was this? Oh man, I was still at my old firm. Pre-law school, post-law school? No, I suppose no, I hadn't been practicing. I, I still been, had the magazine going. 13? 17 probably. Oh no, it was before that. Oh, was it? Because I've been at HD 15, for, 16? I'm thinking 13, 14. Okay. Hall. Um, somewhere it would have been, it would have been after I, uh, after I left, um, my first, uh, legal job and was at, uh, I was on my own. That's when I when I started reaching out to people and and um, 
going to lunch and trying to make connections with people that <clears throat> find out whether or not people were worthy of making connections with. <laughs> Somehow I made it on the list to even be considered. Yes. Considered. Yes, I'm still considering. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow you're here. We always have that to go off of. At least actions speak louder than words, like I like to always say. Uh, but yes, I, I did. I've learned a lot from Sean personally in my life. I'm still learning. And we had a recent conversation about being vulnerable, being open with yourself, um, accepting things that have happened and talking to people about those things. So a lot of respect for you, buddy. And I'm looking forward to, to delving into the topic today myself. And how about you, Greg Green? I think you've known uh, Sean longer than the rest of us. Yes, I can officially say I've known him the longest. Uh, granted, we had a little hiatus where we've officially crossed paths again. But I'd say middle school, Our Lady Queen of Heaven, was a middle school where me and Sean went. I separated by maybe a year. I think I was one year right. ahead of you. And we both went to Barb High School and both played football together. And, you know, Sean and I are both bigger guys and uh, we were usually playing line. And so we were kind of, it was cool to have a guy uh, near that, you know, I think it was came from both, came from Queen of Heaven, both sort of had the same uh, spirit and affect and just, you know, I was considered just good guys and uh, both felt that football was overrated and um, found a different path and uh, it was awesome. And it's crazy uh, that, you know, after all these years, you know, of course we both went our separate ways and I remember coming back to town and, and running into him at the gym and it was just really cool to see him back in town and getting to interact since then on several occasions and i remember matt one time saying he was going to lunch with sean corker and i was like oh man that's i miss sean i haven't seen him in so long and so uh looking forward to even spending some more time yeah john god well, only knows what you've got here for us. well you know it was a recent development for me too um i, I met sean after i moved back to town uh, and i had been practicing for a while a mutual friend of ours who uh, Sean initially went and worked for, I think, probably introduced this, um, Shana Sonye. So I think that's how I first got to meet yeah. Sean and then uh, developed a stronger friendship over the years. Um, he was actually my roommate whenever I, we worked team on uh, Axe Retreat. So that seems to be a reoccurring theme on this podcast. Yeah, that's when I found out that I snore. <laughs> you know, he asked me, he he does asked snore. me if, I, if I snore, and I said... Um, Michelle's never told me that I snore, which is the question that people always ask. If you snore, your wife will know. But um, I don't think that was exactly what you said. Oh, I wasn't done. Okay. <laughs> wait, wait, what did you? No, go okay. ahead. Finish. So, uh, so the issue with that is that <clears throat> my wife um, began wearing earplugs every night um, to sleep after our first child was born. And this is how it went. We got the baby home. We put him in a bassinet next to the bed. Um, the first night, it was he slept too loud for her, so she moved him to my side of the bed. It was still too loud, so she started wearing earplugs. Then it was way too loud for me. So, uh, so it, this worked out for our child because he slept through the night very quickly. I, I then moved him to his bedroom with a monitor. And, um, and he snored. And so I turned the monitor off. I just assumed if he cried, I'd be able to hear him from across the house. And I, and I did. <clears throat> so my wife somehow made it through the first, um, six to eight weeks of our baby without ever having to wake up to feed him or change him. 
That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, she's a genius. Sounds so like she still wears really earplugs smart, yeah. because now we have three kids <clears throat> and she doesn't want to have to wake up. <clears throat> so she's never told me that I snored. And so I didn't realize that I snored. She snores so loud. Okay, that, that's more to it. He All said, right. I would never know if I snore. You'd never hear me over uh, my wife. <laughs> and she doesn't know she snores because she's wearing earplugs. That's Man. awesome. Sounds like you and Craig would be perfect roommates. Man, I'll be a roommate, Sean. We're good. Yeah. You didn't know you snored either? Well, so I was told I snored on occasion. And I like to believe it was only when maybe I had a few too many drinks or, you know, sleep deprivation. But... uh I don't know. I mean, I go nights where I know I don't snore. My wife confirms this. But unfortunately... Uh, I got the best of Craig that Matt night. Matt pulled the short straw that <laughs> night. And I, yeah, I slept good. He not so much. I got the best of Craig and Gator on that night. It's a good <laughs> night. That's the reason I was so worried about having somebody snored with me on the axe retreat. John made so much fun of me. So I'm glad you got to experience some of that your own when you went with Sean. <laughs> John, uh, John's been on two axe retreats with no sleep. Hey, Pretty I didn't good. complain about it. He was a great roommate. He can sleep outside. <laughs> Under the rain on a board for four days. Craig, don't make it look that good. I told someone this story and then showed a picture of John on the bed sleeping outside. It's a regular bed with a com- with a mattress, blankets, undercover. I did have uh, my sleeping pants on, so I was comfortable. I I had to sleep in my raincoat because I was getting rained on, though. Other than that, it was, it was, right it was, it was pretty nice. <laughs> okay, Sean, on to the, the more deeper... Um, thought processes of some of the things you've overcome in your life, some of the adversity, et cetera. And I still think back to the, the lunch we had at the Harlequin and you, you tell me a lot about it. And then since you've been very open on some social media, talking at several, um, uh, functions, things like that, about, uh, things you've overcome in your life. And so why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about how you've overcome adversity, willpower, faith, et cetera. I know that's a broad question, but maybe you can, you can kind of start the fire there. Yeah, so I think that uh, probably the most difficult thing that I have experienced um, to date is my daughter. Um, You know, the other day I picked up my kids from school and I took them uh, home and I was making dinner, which is typical in our house. Um, My wife usually comes home, uh, sits down in the recliner and says, where's my beer? So, um, you know, I, in my apron, I'm cooking dinner for my kids and I'm trying to get them outside on this, uh, this giant play set that I, uh, that I built with my bare hands and that I'm going to make them play on every day for at least the next five years. Get your money's worth. Yeah. And so, uh, so I, I was trying really hard to get them outside. I just kept telling them to go outside. My son, um, doesn't like playing by himself. So he was, he was saying, come on ZZ, come on ZZ, let's go play. And she wouldn't go cause she had other ideas. And, um, and so my son is very, very, very smart for a five-year-old and he's extremely manipulative. And he, um, so he walks up to me in the kitchen and he stops me and he looks at me and he says, dad, you know why ZZ's not going outside, right? Why she's not listening to you. And I said, no, why? And he said, because she doesn't love you and she hates you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Right at you. So, so I, I stopped for a second and I, I wanted to just kind of talk to him about, you know, what what that means, like the things that he's saying and try to be a parent. But before I could say anything, my daughter runs in from another room, looks me straight in the eye and says, it's true. (laughs) (laughs) And so, uh, so that, that is, um, that is one of the most difficult situations that I, uh, 
that I've had to encounter, I think I laughed at that. And then, um, so she told me she hated me every day for like three or four weeks uh, until <laughs> oh, Michelle finally, um, asked her to stop and say, Hey, um, that's not, that's not right. Well, that's okay. My stepson tells me that from time to time too. So <laughs> you're not, my you dad. still, you still have, you still have longer ways to go before you're finished with that. <laughs> yeah. I'm waiting for, uh, for Henry, my, um, uh, my adopted child one day for us to get into an argument. Um, and for him to shout out, you're not my dad. Uh, I'm sure that'll go really well. <laughs> oh, man. Well, look, actually, Sean, that, no, that's not what you're talking about. It was not exactly, but it does make me think <laughs> it does make me think of something um, that I think would be cool for the listeners to hear. And that is that I feel like you beat to your own drum a little bit, which we all do. But some people don't necessarily own that. Um, I'm trying to own it over here myself, even though you all want to make fun of me 247. But so easy. Um, yes, the low hanging fruit. Um, but you also have made a recent decision with a lifestyle change to um, with your law practice, but also being involved with your family, etc., which is not um, the norm, so to speak, for a lot of people, but something you have felt called to do something that's a big part of your life that you've, you've uh, let your career not necessarily take a full backseat, but a backseat somewhat to your family professional career meaning. Um, you want to tell the uh, listeners a little bit about that? Yeah. So my wife, um, is a dentist. She has her own practice. Um, for years I had my own law firm and we struggled from the time that we had children because, um, essentially we were each working for ourselves 50 to 60 hours a week in order to pay people to take care of our kids. And, um, and that was very, that was very difficult. Um, Michelle struggled for a while with, um, you know, ma maternity versus career, um, you know, and, uh, and she really, she really struggled with, you know, making that decision, which I think, I think that's something that, that women mothers really struggle with, um, overall, you know, if they have a career is, uh, feeling like they're, they're not enough and, um, you know, and, and, it, and I think it kind of led to some sort or some, some degree of depression for her that I didn't realize um, that she was struggling with this. I just knew that, that we knew we weren't doing what we wanted to do for our family. And so, so we finally, it took years, uh, got to the point where I just said, okay, this is what we're going to do. You know, um, I, I know how important it is your career is to you. And that doesn't mean that our children aren't important to her, but, um, so I'm going to take a back seat, and so that you can um, focus on on doing, you know, the the work that you've worked so hard to be able to do, and and I can feel comfortable knowing that my kids aren't in aftercare, and you know, it's just things that my mom was a stay at home mom, you know, and that's a that's a, a great privilege, you know, it's it's not something that 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 everyone gets, and and I really appreciated that, and so it's important to me that my children um, have some degree of that. And so, um, so I did, I, I and, it, and actually after we made that decision and prayed about it and, and God was speaking very, very clearly to us about what we needed to do. And it was at the point where I was just going to hang it all up, um, you know, and, and just kind of finish out the cases that I had and then, um, take care of the kids for a while, you know, years, and then, you know, figure out the next step later. And right around that same time, I got a phone call from uh, my current law partner, and he just said, um, I think it was like the day after uh, that we really made that decision, and he called and he said, hey, 
I've really been thinking, I think that we should um, partner up. I know there's things that you don't particularly enjoy doing um, that I really like, you know, and I don't particularly like running the business, but I know you like running the business. And so I think we can make this work. And we went back and forth for, um, for several months. And then on January 1st, we did. Um, the big thing we went back and forth on was that I just needed it to be very clear to him that, um, that I would be leaving at one o'clock every day because, you know, it wasn't for me. Um, although I would, I would miss the money and the income. It, that wasn't what it was about. And so, um, and we would have had to sell our house and, you know, and make, make different decisions that we were, we were ready to make. <clears throat> but, um, but, uh, I was, um, that just wasn't, what was important at this time. And so, so he finally got it. Uh, I think that's a hard thing for men to, uh, to get to, you know, it's a hard conversation to have with men because we're, we're raised to work and provide. And so, uh, I've talked to a lot of men about this and, um, only one person's actually said it, but I think a lot of people have thought it. And he said, uh, he said, he said, I, <laughs> I get, I get what you're saying and, and I hear why you're doing it, but I don't understand. Um, and I think that's probably, you know, that's the reason it's difficult because it was difficult for me too, to say, you know, I'm supposed to provide for my family and, and this is providing for my family. It's just doing it in a way that's not financial. Um, and it's also a big commitment to say, Hey, I'm going to be with my kids in, in, which is hard. Yeah. It's the hardest job there is, dude. At work, uh, you know, by myself, which is much, much easier, you know? Um, and so, uh, so that was a tough decision. You know, we, on January 1st, we started the new law firm. We, um, we went uh, to the end of the month that I was working. I was picking my son up from school, but then I was bringing him back to the office and working every day until, uh, until five um, because it's just it's like starting a brand new business. Um, and on February 1st, I cut back to 2.45, um, three days a week. And then uh, I reminded them today, actually, that uh, starting on Monday, um, with the exception of Mondays, I'll be leaving at one forty-five every day. And then April, I'll be out at one o'clock. Um, every Scaling day. it back, man. Yeah. And I think a lot of the stuff we're going to delve into here, um, that you've experienced in your life has probably helped you deal with some of the changes you're even going through now. You've recently moved into a new house, did a remodel over there. That's a pretty big project to do. Craig could speak to that. Um, changing the law firms, getting a whole new practice started. All the while having multiple kids, a wife, that's a lot on somebody's plate. Um, but I think all your experience in life, you could probably say has built you for some of that, huh? That's right. Um, you know, I think that the way that, uh, the way that I would kind of describe it is that, um, I'm not scared to, uh, to take a risk because, um, I've been in a position before where I've had nothing and, and now I'm where I'm at today. And so I know that that's possible, you know? And so whatever the worst case scenario is, um, you know, as long as it's not death, I know that I can come back from it. And, um, and so I'm very comfortable with that. And so I'm not really, really worried about, um, you know, what kind of decisions, you know, what the impact of the decisions is going to be on me. Um, um, you know, I think that much to my, wife's dismay sometimes that also, um, that has, has led me to not uh, be as concerned about, um, materialism and, you know, 
making a whole bunch of money and and um you know having a big house um <clears throat> so she she pulls away there Sean, it's, it's awesome that you're, you're sharing that because one of our recent conversations has been about having the courage to, to do what your heart calls you to do, what God puts you on earth for, and, and the barriers to doing those things, you know, usually, which usually is an earthly barrier. You know, will I make enough money? You know, will I fit into society? And, you know, all of us have had our trials and tribulations that really shaped us. You know, one I referenced was, you know, being overweight, which is just one of many, but it's just it was a time when there was a lot of tears, sadness, darkness, and all of us have been there in some form or fashion. Um, can you, can you think of, you know, any situations in your life or what inspired you, motivated you, or you think is that deep down drive to do what you've done, have, have a beautiful family, successful careers, but at the same time have the courage to take the step and do what your heart calls you to do. Um, you know, I, I think I've always, um, I've always wanted a family. There was a time when I was discerning, uh, I say discerning, um, you know, being a priest, <clears throat> discerning not to the same extent that people who actually become a priest discern. It was just something that I was thinking that God was maybe calling me to do. And, um, and I can, I can very well remember when, uh, when it came to me that, um, and I was in college, um, then it came to me that, you know, I, I was supposed to have a family and which is something again, that I always wanted to do, um, having a career, <clears throat> I think I was, uh, seven and I must've been arguing with my aunt and she said, you should be a lawyer. Um, and so I'm a lawyer. Uh, <laughs> so that was always my plan. And my dad would just tell me, <clears throat> um, I'm not paying for you to go to law school. Um, and so there was a, a period after he, he made that clear enough that I understood it. Um, cause he had his own feelings about lawyers at that time that, uh, that I decided I was going to be a neurosurgeon and, um, and that was my plan, you know, and it was based upon the amount of money that neurosurgeons made. I, I think I probably still have the article, um, versus the other doctors and the amount of malpractice insurance they made, they paid so that I could figure out how I could make the most, uh, possible net income. And so that was it. Like, that's the reason I wanted to do it. Um, and <clears throat> And I'm very thankful that I am not uh, a neurosurgeon. I don't think that was the right the right career for me. Um, as I went through life and I got to to places that it became more and more clear that my dad was not going to be paying for anything for me, um, and I'd be paying for whatever kind of school I went to. Uh, it was easier for me to say, "Okay, I want to I want to be an attorney." Um, so that's how I grew up. I grew up with posters on my wall of uh, mansions and. And uh, cars that said, you know, success quotes like uh, uh, motivation for higher higher education, um, and that was my plan. And then when I got through, when I got into to college, um, you know, I, and I was away for the first time. I went to college my first year in Florida State, at Florida State, and um, and I was away for a year with uh, with no handcuffs, so to speak, and I just kind of. Um, went wild and uh you know and I had a great one year vacation in Florida um that my dad did pay for uh sounded like you channeled your inner Steve <laughs> yeah I don't know maybe Steve, even beyond that I don't know if Steve could have hung with me and uh <laughs> maybe that year because I, I was coming from a place of uh 
a, a very little experience. So uh, my, my threshold was, was, was very, my tolerance was very low. But, um, you know, in that year, I think it was in, uh, in January of that year, the first girl I dated um, in college got pregnant and, um, and she told me that she was going to have an abortion. And so I... Um, so this is when you were still at Florida State? Yes. Okay. This is when I was 19, um, 18. And, uh, and that was pretty much devastating. You know, I, I went to Catholic schools and, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't have, like I said, a lot of life experience, but I knew that, that I believed that abortion, um, is murder and that I love children. And so it just didn't make sense to me. And I did everything I could to convince her otherwise. Um, you know, my dad came in immediately and, um, you know, they made, he made it clear that, you know, my parents would adopt the baby that, um, that there was nothing to worry about, but you know, her, her, her mindset was much different than that. Her mom was very supportive of her decision. And, uh, on January 19th of, um, 1997, uh, is when she had the abortion. Um, you know, and I spent the rest of that semester, uh, kind of sitting in my dorm room, um, didn't really leave for anything. I think my roommate kept bringing me food. Uh, so this would be your second semester of college. Yes. Yeah. And so, uh, so I failed out. I got a 0.3. I think I made it out of the room to go to a discrete mathematics class. I do not know what that is, but I, um, drew enough pictures on the paper that I got a C minus. So I got one C minus and a whole bunch of F's. And, um, so I failed out. And then after that summer, I went back to college at McNeese here in Lake Charles. Um, I was on uh, academic probation, obviously. <clears throat> and I had a good one or maybe two years after that where I did pretty well, joined a fraternity, um, and had a good time. And then, uh, and then I um, was introduced to cocaine and um, and I'd say that's that's pretty much uh, I, I, that was one of the most one of the things I, I think it killed the pain. You know, I, I don't think I realized that at the time because I didn't know what was going on until way, way later. But um, but I felt different is the best way to put it. It made me feel different and uh, it made me feel alert and awake. And I never really enjoyed getting uh, too drunk or I never really enjoyed smoking weed because it made me feel dumb. Um, but, uh, but this did not have that effect. Uh, I felt more alert and, and, and more alive, I would say. And so I continued down that path for, um, for years. And I mean, I can, I can very clearly, I knew even then that I was, um, you know, the people that I was getting this stuff from, that I was doing it way more than they were, um, you know, it, to where I was embarrassed to keep going back to the same people and I'd find other people to go to so that the people I was going to didn't know how often I was doing it. Um, and, and that led to other things, you know, it led to a period of time where I was bartending and took probably uh, five or six ecstasy pills uh, every Thursday, every Friday and every Saturday night, um, you know, for maybe a year. Um, there was times when I took 
things that uh, were not ecstasy and um, and ended up, you know, with friends watching me to make sure that they didn't need to take me to the hospital um, because we didn't know what was in that stuff. I mean, I can't imagine now with with fentanyl and all that stuff, I would absolutely be dead. Um, and then uh, and then crystal meth, you know, and, and I started doing meth um, and did it for about five years. Um, I think I lost, I don't know, 80 pounds. I think I got down to, uh, to 185 pounds. Um, I'm currently 260. <laughs> uh, you know, healthy, I think healthy for me um, is somewhere around 240. Um, so I was very unhealthy at 185. I, um, you know, I, I did it to the point where I lost my jobs. I lost my home. I lost uh, all of my friends. I didn't really have anywhere to go or anything to do. And eventually, um, you know, through other choices that I made uh, in an effort to support my drug habit, I, um, you know, I lost my family and my family pretty much said, um, you need to not come back. And uh, that was around Thanksgiving of 2005. So during this this time period, did you try any treatment or recovery um, programs? Um, during that time period, I did not. Uh, you know, I also gambled. I think um, one of the side effects of being awake all the time when no one else was awake with nothing to do uh, was boredom. And so I would sit in these little video poker, you know, closets in the bars mm -hmm. and uh, just play until my money was gone and it could be the money I needed for rent. It could be that I was running out of drugs and I was going to need money the next day to get more drugs. It could be, um, money that I had borrowed from somebody and I needed to be able to pay it back, but it was all gone. Um, it was all gone every time. So, so one of my employers who was a recovering addict, um, got me into, uh, uh, gamblers anonymous meetings and, um, that wasn't the issue. You know, the issue was drugs, but I wasn't ready to tell people about that. So um, I would sit in these meetings um, really high and uh, just watch the clock and, you know, feel my pulse, you know, just kind of hoping I wasn't going to die um, in a recovery meeting because that would be like really, really embarrassing. <laughs> and, um, and I mean, looking at it now, like they knew, you know, they might not have known what was going on, but they knew something was wrong with me. And so, um, so, so that's, that's the extent of, of, you know, during that, that Were you time still period. doing your schooling? Part oh, I failed out of school two more times. So you stopped with the school in part. Yeah. Yeah. Around your family, was it something you tried to hide or was it obvious to them or were you able to kind of, was it like two lives or was it kind of definitely two lives, mm -hmm. but I think it was obvious to mm -hmm. them. They knew something was wrong. Yeah. Um, I'm sure I, I remember conversations that I had with my mom that, wouldn't make sense unless they had been fighting about what was wrong with me, mm -hmm. you know, uh, say fighting or discussing. I don't know if they fought about it. They were probably both agreeing. Um, you know, and then, uh, around that Thanksgiving of, uh, of 2005, um, two or three days after my dad told me not to come back to the house, I got fired from my job. Um, and the hurricane, hurricane, uh, Rita, Rita. had come right before that. So, um, I was staying in a hotel provided by FEMA that was open to, uh, the employees of the restaurant, 
because the restaurant was one of the first ones open to, to service all of the people coming back to town. So I was able to stay in a room there, but then I, I got fired, um, you know, and, uh, and they said, um, you know, and that was it. So I went back to my room and I, um, I did, uh, the last of the drugs that I have had. And I, uh, you know, I, I, the way, the, the only way to describe the room at that point was I'd been staying there for two weeks with a do not disturb sign on the door. Um, nobody had been in there. The sheets were dirty. The, um, the, the room was dirty. Uh, there was one light bulb left because I'd used all the other light bulbs to make, um, pipes to smoke meth. Um, and, and so I did the rest of the drugs that I had and I just kind of laid down on the floor and, and I mean, I really believed that I was going to die. Um, and, and at some point there I passed out and, um, and then when I woke up, you know, I, I, something was different. And I knew when I woke up that day that, um, like God was telling me I needed to go to treatment. And so I had this pamphlet that I'd had for years somehow still in my truck, probably cause I didn't clean it or, uh, <laughs> or, uh, I didn't get oil changes either. So I had, I had this pamphlet in my truck and I went out to my truck and I got it and I came back inside and I called the place and I, and I asked if they had a, uh, if they had space and they did. And then I said, all right, well, I'll be there today. Um, and it was in Shreveport, which is about three and a half hours away. Right. Um, and, uh, and so I, I called my parents and told them and my mom said, I'm praying for you. Um, you know, I didn't have enough money to put gas in the gas tanks. So, um, I don't remember exactly how it happened, but somehow my dad helped me to get gas in my gas tank and said, good luck. Um, you know, call me when you get there. Um, so I drove up there, you know, and, and, and it, at this point, I don't think I'd had an oil change in my truck probably in five years. And so, um, it shouldn't have made it. Uh, I, I was pretty much ready that entire five year period for my truck to break down. And, um, so I drove up to Shreveport and I started getting on these Hills, which we don't have in Lake Charles and the truck just kind of started shaking. And, um, and I was pretty certain that it was just going to stop. And, you know, I, I pulled into the parking lot of the treatment center and my truck stopped working. Wow. And, um, and so I, I ended up pushing it into a space and I walked inside and I said, uh, you know, I'd like to, to call my dad and, and the girl, the lady said, uh, well, he's already called us. Uh, he's got all the information he needs and he'll be here on Sunday. And, um, and, you know, that was, that was a very spiritual experience, I think, to understand that, uh, you know, something that I could never understand until I had my own kids, you know, um, because all the stuff that I had done to my parents, you know, and, and, and done and said, and, um, you know, manipulation and, and lies and, and, and stealing from them and, you know, for them to be there, uh, every single Sunday and, um, on Christmas, um, you know, it, it really does mean a lot. Yeah, man, that's, that's incredible. And, and I'm sure that's, uh, something that you do, like you said, you can appreciate the more now that you have kids in your life. And I'm sure that John and Craig can talk to that a little bit too. The, the feelings of always, you know, wanting to be there because sometimes parents do give up. So it's pretty cool that, that you're stayed alone for the ride. 
Yeah, another interesting point. Um, you know, I've heard this story before uh, from Sean. And the how long had that pamphlet been in your uh, truck waiting for you? Years. <laughs> like it had it had been in my. Uh, it was one of the first things I got at the first Gamblers Anonymous meeting that I went to. So I would say two and a half to three years that it had been in my truck. And it took you a little while to find it. Yeah. <laughs> and this was also a free facility. It was free, yes. Yeah, yes, it was for gamblers. Right. Uh, so, so when you know one of the one of the greatest things probably that um, that Edwin Edwards did uh, when he was governor is when they brought the casinos in, he made them pay for this facility for um, gambling addiction, um, which makes it free to the people who, who need it, you know, and, and everyone that was in there. Um, and, and I think gambling and, and, you know, especially speed, uh, stimulant addiction probably goes hand in hand, but, um, everyone in there for the most part had, had multiple things going on. Um, it wasn't just, uh, except for maybe one or two of the, of the young kids that were in there, um, gambling, it was a lot of drugs. And so a lot of withdrawals and, um, and, and so they, you know, we were able to address it. And, and more importantly, I was able to, to kind of take a step back for, um, for 45 days and, uh, and kind of reset my life and my prayer life and, you know, and really just think about without any obligations uh, where I had gotten to, how I had gotten there, um, where I wanted to get to and how I, how I could get there, whether that's uh, education or family or <clears throat> God or whatever. And Sean, when you woke up, so you you said you really actually expected to die. You didn't think you would come to. When you woke up, you said you knew you needed to to do something. Was there something specific that came to your mind? Man, I'm still alive. Was it that point? What made you discern, man, I need, I need to go get some help. I'm going to go up there. Was there a poignant pl- thing that made that happen? Yeah, I mean, it was a voice telling me to go to go get that pamphlet out of my car. So an inner, an inner voice, your conscience, Holy Spirit, something God. like that. Yeah, yeah. And it's almost like he intentionally killed your car at the moment, so there was no turning back. Yeah, and I don't think I would have turned back, but I mean that was really dramatic. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I always yeah, remember like, about that story. I, I was planning on died. I was yeah. planning on parking in the parking spot. Like it wasn't uh, it wasn't something that you know. I mean, but you know, you get what you want. So it's you never cool. know. You might have changed your mind the last minute. I'm out of here. Yeah, yeah. You'd have to leave on foot, bro. So you get up to the facility and, and you're alluding to that your family would come, they could come on Sundays. Is that what it was? Yes. Okay. And how, you were there for 45 days? I was. They had, it was a 30 day program. Um, I think that the theory was that it takes 28 days um, to change. So they made it 30 to, um, to, to go beyond that, you know, to be overachievers. But, um, but at the end, you know, the people who had been there the longest, I think maybe once every two weeks they did this, the people that had been there the longest could have their families and have like a family day, which was uh, not like just visitation or visiting. It was uh, like a group therapy, essentially, where you could really talk about everything and talk about, uh, you know, they could talk too about, you know, how they've been affected, you know, and everybody could leave hopefully with a better understanding of, of how we got there and what needs to change. And, um, when I got to my 30 days, uh, I was like the, uh, I don't know, however many people it was, I was the next person. So I couldn't do it. So I begged them to let me stay for another 15 days so that I could participate in that. 
Um, I didn't have anywhere to go. I didn't have anything to do. You know, I didn't have mm-hmm. a job. I didn't have any relationships. I didn't have uh, any friendships. I didn't, um, there was really no motivation for me. I was probably scared to get out of there. But uh, How I old really were you at this, this point, John, in 05? 27. 27. Um, what was the the treatment like? Was it difficult at first, or did you just kind of succumb to it and you were okay? Was it a mental mm. grind? No, it was very uh, peaceful because my life for the six or seven years prior to that was extremely stressful every day, um, waiting to get caught on whatever was going on that day. Um, you know, realizing I knew that I was hurting everyone and I didn't know why I couldn't stop doing it. So knowing that I was um, in a safe place where people knew how to address this and that, um, that I couldn't leave uh, was, was very peaceful, I'd say. So did you get your chance uh, to have your family day? I did, yes. How did that go? Um, there was a lot of tears. Um, you know, my, my brain still was not working at 100% because of all the chemicals that I'd put into it. So um, I can recall a couple parts of the conversation where um, if I looked at that now, I would say that was really manipulative. Um, I don't know that I was doing it intentionally at the time because uh, I think just processing information was much more difficult you know, for a period of time after that. But, um, but we left and I went, uh, you know, I went back home and I stayed with my parents. All right, guys, we appreciate everyone tuning in to part one of our visit with Sean. Uh, as you can tell, he's got a very deep and impactful story, um, on his walk of life, so to speak, and tune in next week for part two. And until then, we'll catch you later. Hey, y'all. If you've been enjoying picking up what we've been laying down, subscribe and never miss an episode. Find us on social media and let us know who's driving your car this week. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Who's Driving Your Car Podcast. Perfect timing, sun is shining, nothing more I need. Yeah. If you feel like this your best life, won't you sing with me?